Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in! Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited for this week's episode. Um, and actually, this is the first of my two podcasts a week episodes. So I just want to go over a little recap of how we are going to do this as we go forward. So if you've been listening to me for a little while, you know that um, I release an episode every Monday. It's usually something about faith or politics or history or something like that. I've been doing a couple episodes about health recently, so could be anything, but something that I'm interested in. Now on Thursdays, I really want to focus on strict like biblical messages. So, um, so let me back up a little bit. Every single year, I feel like I resolve to read the Bible cover to cover and very rarely does it happen. I don't know if it's actually ever happened in my life. So I didn't like that. I resolved this year to read the whole Bible again, but I looked up like April 1st and I still hadn't read pretty much any of the Bible. So I figured this is a very good way to keep me accountable to actually read the Bible is if I read a chunk of scripture over the week, like before I record, write down all the questions I have and really Um, For our Thursday episodes, I'm going to go into those questions, research the questions, and talk about any kind of prevailing themes through the passage. So this week I read Genesis 1 through 30. And honestly, this is the second time I've recorded this podcast because I tried it the first time, basically just pulling out the themes that I liked or the themes that I wanted to talk about. And honestly, I hated it. Like I did not like it at all because it just felt like, it just felt like I was ignoring all the questions I had and just trying to pull out like the messages and the messages are really good. And I'll touch on those today too, but it wasn't answering any of my questions. Like it wasn't getting to the point of me wanting to know the Bible more and understanding it and really having a strong foundation of biblical knowledge and it was kind of missing the point of that. So this is the second time I recorded it. I took it off the the original one off the schedule and deleted it and now we're trying this again. So I went back and instead of just pulling out the the good messages that I did, I went back and took notes on every single question or like major point of confusion I had in the passage and I went and googled some commentary or some historical Uh, knowledge so that I could understand that verse more. So that is what we're going to be doing on Thursdays. Like I said, this week I did Genesis 1 through 30. Other weeks, um, it ends up being about five uh, chapters per day. And if you do that, um, you'll finish the Bible by the end of the year. So end of 2021. So if you follow along with me, we will be reading the entire Bible by, you know, the end of the year, uh, end of 2021, and we'll be done by the new year. So if you want to follow along next week, we're reading Genesis 31 through Exodus 7. I would love it if you followed along and DM'd me any questions you had so that I can go research them and present them on the podcast. So feel free to let me know any confusion or questions that you have. So let's get into Genesis 1 through 30. So Genesis 
1 through 30 goes all the way from the creation story all the way up until Joseph is born, which is like Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you've heard of that story, which we will get into more. But it goes through a few generations from, um, from Adam and Eve all the way down to Joseph. First, um, couple chapters talk about the creation of the world and how you know God created everything and how it was good now a quick point I didn't really realize that there were two different creation stories one is the seven day story where he creates basically a thing per day uh, so he creates a sky and then he creates the stars and after each day he says it's good he creates um, man on the sixth day and on the seventh day he rests that's one of the stories the next one is basically that everything was formless, spring started to appear, then animals, and kind of goes through the progression of things that he created um, in a similar way. But then he creates Adam. Uh, Adam is in charge of naming all the animals. And when um, he's naming all these animals, he realizes that there are no suitable helpers for Adam. So God um, puts him into a deep sleep, takes out his rib, and makes Eve. So that's the basically origin story of Adam and Eve, and it describes our fall and our original sin. So in Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Um, and I was confused by this. This was the first question of the book that I had, which is very early on. Um, but basically, my questions were, God had just created every in the story God had just created everything and he said everything was good so after every single thing that he created he said he saw that it was good well the serpent being crafty is not good it's inherently bad and it said that there he was craftier than the other creations that God had made so I was confused like does that imply that God made something evil or that the serpent somehow fell on his own and it became bad and that was the first sin so i looked it up and even though no like that bible verse there doesn't say that the serpent is the devil we actually find that in some other verses so one of the verses that this commentary pointed to to talk about how um the serpent was the devil and not and that god did not make um the serpent to be evil was in Revelation 12, 9. So we're going all the way to the last book of the Bible. And it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So God did not create something to be evil. It was Satan who was thrown down to earth. He fell, and he inhabited, essentially, the serpent so he was the crafty serpent it wasn't one of god's good good creations that all of a sudden just deceived um it was satan himself and that's kind of backed up in second corinthians eleven four, which says um and no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it talks about the devil disguising himself and coming basically down here and he is it basically says he's, you know, he's a liar and he disguises himself. So we have good reason to believe that the devil has already fallen and he disguised himself as a creation that was good in order to deceive Adam and Eve. Which I take, I mean, there's a good lesson to be learned there about the devil and how sneaky he is because 
really like what I journaled about was that it doesn't matter how good something looks or how clean or pure something looks if it's saying something against God's will it will lead you down a bad path which is honestly why I'm doing this whole Bible study sort of series anyway because I don't want to be wishy-washy in what I think God is saying or what the word maybe says I want it to be like right at the forefront of my mind and say like if the devil comes to me with a lie I want to be able to call it out as a lie right away so that's part of the reason why I'm doing this because a lot of things look good like he disguised himself in a serpent that looked like a good creation of God but it was actually the devil that was lying to to Adam and Eve so that is a good lesson for us to take away is that we need to be very very firm in our faith but faith comes by hearing the word of God and so we need to be in the word which honestly I have not been the best at as we discussed but we're getting better and we can get better together so that's good um the other way thing I want to talk about about the serpent was how he convinced Eve to actually take a bite of the apple or actually never says apple to take a bite of the fruit basically he straight up misquoted God so again this is why we need to read the word because in that same chapter in Genesis when Eve is approached by the serpent he tries to basically quote God or I mean he he knows that he's misquoting but he goes up to Eve and says did God really say so he's questioning God but then he goes did God really say you can eat none of the fruit of this field or this garden which is a misquote he God never said that they couldn't eat any of the fruit he just said that they couldn't eat one specific tree like tree they couldn't eat the fruit of one specific tree so he's gonna come up and question you but it'll also be a lie so no um, Eve said no he didn't say everything he just said this specific tree and then the serpent promised her these things like this knowledge that they could become like God and they could become godlike themselves and so it said when basically when she saw that the fruit was you know appealing and could provide wisdom that's when she decided to eat the fruit so she bought into the lie the misquote of God and then the false promise that she could be more like God so again that just tells a lot about how the devil will come to us and try to deceive because he will misquote God and then if you don't know your stuff if you don't know the word and what God actually says about you and your situation and stuff then it's very easy to fall for that. Um, the other thing I wanted to note about this too is that once God, you know, finds out that they were deceived and all of that stuff and basically describes the original sin, so like women will have tr pain in childbirth and men will have to toil and, you know, work the land and stuff like that. Basically, we get the first prophecy of Jesus, which is God saying that um, the basically the descendants of the serpent and Eve will be at odds so the serpent's descendants will strike the heel of Eve's descendants but Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent which if you go way into the New Testament we know is prophesying that Jesus is going to come and ultimately defeat death which is the crushing of the head of the serpent which is symbolic of death and the devil so that's really cool the they waste no time like right as um, the first sin happens the first prophecy of Jesus happens so another thing I found interesting about Genesis 3 in particular was the fact that 
it said, and I guess I didn't know that this came from Genesis 3, but it says, from dust you are and from dust you will return. And I recognize that because that is what Catholics say on Ash Wednesday. So if you're not Catholic and aren't aware of Ash Wednesday, basically um, it's something that Catholics participate in. Basically on Ash Wednesday mass, you go up and you get a smear of dust or like charcoal almost looking stuff on your forehead in the shape of a cross and while they smear that on your forehead um the priest says this quote from dust you are and from dust you will return so i was wondering why specifically that quote is used on ash wednesday because it seemed i mean i know the catholic church has a lot of traditions you know and so i figured it was for a very good reason but i just i guess i missed the reason growing up um essentially ash wednesday is the wednesday before lent and so you're preparing lent which is a time that a lot of catholics fast or give up something or add something like reading the bible more or something like that to grow closer to jesus for the 40 days before easter this is a professor from Harvard. It says, when we repeat the words, we remember that we continue that journey into the vast fallen world. With our foreheads smeared with ashes, we are called upon to face our own mortality and failings. In the act of receiving ashes, we are called to bear our whole selves to God in our beautiful, messy, sinless selves. There is no hiding behind veiled words or elusive con concepts. Ash Wednesday cuts through all of that. So I think that's really actually profound and pretty beautiful. It's like, because Lent, the whole purpose of Lent is like to deny yourselves, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for those 40 days and lead up to Easter, really growing closer to God and denying yourself. It's all about confessing and acknowledging that our brokenness and saying that, yes, from dust we are and dust we will return. We are nothing without God and we need God and his grace for our lives. So... It's about our own brokenness, and I think that's really, really good. So, yeah, that's why um, Catholics say, from dust you are and from dust you will return. So my next question was found a little bit later on in Genesis. Basically, after we see the creation story, it ends up following the genealogy all the way down to Noah. And for people who are not aware of Noah's story, um, the human race was basically all evil god um, described it as their hearts were hardened they were just sinning all the time and there was basically no righteous person left except for noah and his family so the lord said uh to noah to make an ark to build an ark and gave extremely specific specifications for that ark and said to gather or basically said that animals would come to him in pairs and so him his family and the animals should go in that ark god was going to send a flood that will wipe out the whole human race um, but he would spare noah because his family was righteous and these animals so I, during that explanation, basically, the Lord told Noah that he regretted making human beings because they were so evil, their hearts were so hard, and they were sinning constantly. So that confused me naturally because God, we know, is one, perfect, so it seems hard for him to like regret or it seems impossible for him to have a regret, but he also knows the future, so he knew you know, that humans would do this. He knew what the outcome would be. So how could he regret something? 
This one, I looked up some Bible commentary that basically said that um, God can know what he did and what he does. Like, he knows everything, so it wasn't a surprise to him, but still feels sorrow that humans are doing what they're doing. So, like, in the New Testament, we see Jesus weeping. It's not because he doesn't know the outcome of something. He's still grieved by the fact that humans are doing this. And so it's the same way with God in the Old Testament. So he can know exactly what humans are going to do and what the result is, um, but still feel sorrow that humans that have free will can choose to do something so evil. Um, so because they're sinning against him so constantly, his heart is righteously grieved for that sin. Um, it does not mean, this commentary claims that the word regret in this sense does not mean regret as in he wishes that if he could do it over, he would in a different way. It just means that the actions of humans are grieving him. And he says, if I'm, I regret this because he's so um, saddened that humans have become this due to their own free will. So yeah, it doesn't mean that he wants to do it over or change it. It's just, we have free will, We ch they chose badly, and it saddens him. Um, okay, the next part goes through Noah and the Ark, the entire thing where it says um, the specifications to build it, how it's all going to work, um, all of that. So re reads about Noah and the Ark. Um, I basically wanted to research finding like if they found any part of the ark sounds like there has not been any findings of the ark because the area of land to search is just gigantic so it says uh, like that the ark landed on mountains but the region that of mountains it could have landed on is so expansive that it's very 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 hard to find anything there because you can just it could be anywhere essentially so looks like nothing has been found there which i was a little disappointed about but Hopefully one day that'd be cool if they found part of the Ark. Okay, moving on to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 talks about the Tower of Babel and how different languages came about, what the origin of different languages was about. So basically in this story, um, there's a bunch of people all with the same language and they want to build this very, very high tower that they can climb up. And I was confused because after they build the tower, God looked, it says God looked down and saw that it was not good. And so he confused them and mixed up their languages. And they, so they couldn't understand each other. And then they dispersed. And that's why different regions have different languages. However, when I was reading this, I don't know, the NIV, I feel like wasn't that clear in saying why this was bad. Because I was like, why is building a big tower such a bad thing? Like, we have skyscrapers and stuff. And so I was like, that doesn't seem correct. Like, you know. So I read another Bible commentary. Again, all these sources are going to be linked in my description. So fear not. Um, but basically, what they talked about was that it wasn't just about building a tower. That is very innocent. But basically, back in that day, they thought that heaven was very shallow I guess or it was very near above the sky so like they thought if they could get past the sky that they saw there would be heaven right there so the intent was not to just to build a big tower it was to build a tower that they thought could reach heaven and by climbing up it they could be like gods and they could kind of ascend into god or holy not even holiness like they are deities themselves 
which was obviously going against the one true God. So they had lost sight of God being the only God and they were trying to exalt themselves by building this tower, which makes a lot more sense. Like building a tower itself isn't bad, but trying to exalt yourself to a God does seem bad. So that is why it says that God came down and confused their languages so they could no longer really communicate and they couldn't build this tower. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is just the theme of God fulfilling his promises in this entire section. So basically, uh, so Abraham and Sarah, by the end of this section, they're known as Abraham and Sarah. But at the beginning, they were called Abram and Sarai. And God promised Abram and Sarai that they would have a child. And it looked very impossible in the natural world. They were very, very old. However, God made a covenant with them, which ended up changing their names to Abraham and Sarah. Um, and he promised them all this land and their descendants to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the ground. So a lot of descendants. So Sarah was going to have a child, but they, you know, it looked in the natural world very impossible. But God kept saying that Abraham's descendants were going to be so numerous. Well, Sarah got impatient and basically gave her servant Hagar to Abraham to go try to have a kid with her instead, which she did, and it caused some strife between Hagar and Sarah. But I just thought it was very profound how, like, Sarah basically got impatient because God had promised her that she would have a child, but in the natural physical world, it looked impossible, completely impossible. So instead of just saying, okay, well, it looks impossible here, but God has told me that I will have a child. I'm going to wait and trust in him. She tried to fit God's promise into, she tried to basically, basically take it into her own hands and try to make it fit with the natural world and say, well, maybe it was through Hagar. Maybe it wasn't through me. Maybe God didn't really promise it to me. Um, which is wrong, but I think we do that all the time. Like when I was in college, you know, I got pretty impatient that God, or I started kind of questioning that God actually had a godly man out for me out there. So I kind of just dated whoever, like out of the fact that I didn't trust God with my actual future spouse. So we do this a lot. There's small examples, there's big examples, but when God promises you something, even if it looks impossible in the natural, like it did for Sarah, God will fulfill his promises in his right time. And for Sarah, it was when she was very, very old. And these two men came into their camp and said, by the time we come here next year, Sarah will be with child. And she laughed. And then she lied about laughing. <laughs> so it's not like Sarah's some saint. She definitely got very impatient, definitely doubted God's promise, but God was faithful anyway. So I thought that was just a good reminder that we, especially me, need to always keep in mind that it's not our timing, really, it's God's timing that we need to be trusting in, which is very easy to say and much harder to do, but it's a, it's a good reminder nonetheless. So in Genesis 15, my question was, why did God give possession of land only after enslavement? So basically this means in the story, uh, Abraham or God came to Abraham and told him that his people would go through slavery, be enslaved and mistreated by another country for over 400 years before they got out. And then 
um, and then they would go and have the promised land and have ownership of the land that God had promised them. So I was wondering, like, why, why is that part of the promise? This commentary was interesting because it said when God came to Abraham and told him, like, you're going to have all this land and all this, these descendants, there, he said, Abraham replied and said, like, how do you know, or how will I know that this is true? And he questioned God and questioned the promise. So there's kind of a theme here with Sarah and Abraham questioning these promises. And so God realized that, and God saw that Abraham wasn't fully trusting in God. They were both trusting on the natural, like physical world to have these promises and not fully trusting in God. And so God allowed a period of slavery so that the Hebrew people would fully rely on God and realize that they basically needed him. So he didn't cause slavery, but he definitely allowed them to become slaves in a foreign land and be mistreated so that it brought it hit them closer to God and their trust was kind of perfected um, in that time. Then I thought another kind of interesting point later on was God was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were again so evil it was very similar to like Noah's day but he already had made a covenant with Noah that he would never again wipe out all of like humankind again um so that was not an option but he did want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so evil and there's this whole kind of scene where Abraham keeps going back to God and saying if there are only 50 righteous people can you spare the whole city for 50 righteous people and God says yes I will spare the city for 50 and then Abraham lowers the number to 40 or to 45 and then God says yes I will spare for 45 and he eventually gets down all the way to 10 he said if I find 10 righteous people in the city I will spare them however um and that's because Abraham Abraham's nephew Lot was near was in and near the city Actually, he was in the city with his family. And so um, two angels came, or an angel came to Lot and his family and basically told them to flee the city. That was a whole scene. I was interested in Abraham kind of negotiating and interceding on behalf of the city and what the point of that was because God already knew, again, God already knew what was going to happen. It's not like Abraham was really changing his mind. But I found a Bible commentary that talked about how that's really a reflection of how Jesus intercedes for us. So God was going to destroy the entire thing and Abraham uh, basically interceded for the city and asked for mercy and God was merciful and granted, um, and granted mercy and saved Lot's family who were righteous. And not that it's an exact parallel with today because we have Jesus, so our righteousness is has been gifted to us. But um, he was merciful to the people who were righteous and didn't just destroy the entire city. And it's like a mirror of how now Jesus intercedes for us to God, which I thought that was that was cool. So basically, after that whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, there's a whole middle story that I didn't really touch on with any questions. Uh, Sarah has Isaac and then what I really want to focus on was after Isaac married Rebecca they had twin sons Esau and Jacob and when the twins were in Rebecca's womb they were 
I'm like tossing around in there basically. And God said that these are two warring nations, Esau and Jacob, the younger will, or the older will serve the younger. And there was a whole prophecy. So Esau was the older son and Jacob was the younger son. But Rebecca was told that Jacob would get all the inheritance. So she highly favored Jacob and Isaac highly favored Esau. Well, in the story, Jacob, um, so Jacob worked in the tents and kind of like was more around the women a little bit. And Esau was a hunter of the field. So he was always out kind of in the wilderness. Well, one day Esau came into the tent, came back from a hunt and he was starving. He was super hungry. And Jacob said, I'll give you a pot of soup only if you sell me your birthright. So I was confused. I didn't know what a birthright was. Um, and this is from a commentary that I will link below, but it says that a birthright is this. Um, so the custom was to give the birthright, which is like the inheritance. It's kind of like a, a will, I guess. So if you have the birthright, if you have the son that has the birthright, you get more of the share of the inheritance. So it's an honored position as the firstborn son. And that was the custom of the time. Jacob stole the birthright and a blessing from um, Isaac. So he got all of the benefits of what the older son would normally have. And I also didn't get this because God had told Rebecca that Jacob would get this inheritance. And I was wondering, like, if he's going to get the inheritance anyway, why, why doesn't God just make Jacob born first? That seems like an easier thing because then there would be not all this drama of him stealing the birthright and stealing the blessing. If he was just born first, like he would just naturally get this birthright and the prophecy would be fulfilled. But I found another commentary that basically says that this mirrors a lot of how God's kingdom works, where the whole idea of the first being last and the last being first sort of thing. So um, this is what the commentary says. A further observation I'd like to make is, is that paradoxically, God report repeatedly did not follow the custom as he carried out his program of redemption. The Old Testament is full of examples of God choosing younger brothers over older ones. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over his three older brothers as the ancestor of the royal line, David over his seven older brothers as king, and so forth. It seems that God simply looks for the person who can best fulfill his promises regardless of the person's social standing. So, um, and not only that, not only regardless, regardless of the social standing, I think it's a a point, a, a specific point that God is showing that yeah, it doesn't matter like what society sh sees you as. It doesn't sh like it doesn't matter to him if you're the youngest brother and that's not what society favored. He favors you. So, as long as you're willing to be used by God and follow what he is saying, you will be favored. And again, it goes back to the whole first being last and last being first. What the world values is not what God values. Like he takes people who are pretty broken and gives them a whole message and you know, to work for him. And you see that many, many times in the Bible. So this is just one example of, of that, where he chose the younger brother to have the inheritance. Um, later Jacob gets multiple wives and this is a whole 
pretty crazy story where he goes to find a wife he falls in love with a woman named rachel he tells her dad he will work for in the field for seven years in order to have her as a bride and the dad agrees but then gets kind of sinister and on the wedding night goes and tricks him and gives him leia which is rachel's younger sister i mean rachel's older sister and in that day they said okay it's not customary for us to marry off the younger sister before we marry off the older sister so i've given you leia as a wife so then jacob promises to work seven more years to also have rachel because he was truly in love with rachel all of this story led me to the fact that jacob had multiple wives as did abraham i mean abraham slept with hagar i guess maybe not as a wife but then um there's a lot of people in the old testament that have had multiple wives and so i was like does that mean can uh polygamy is condoned at least in the old testament because there's not a whole lot of rebukes or anything about polygamy um and i found an article that said basically no so just because there's no like record of him saying this is wrong because it's polygamy doesn't mean that that is the right way or the design of marriage so from the beginning from genesis like two on we see that the natural good plan of marriage is between one man and one woman because he designed adam and eve and they were married and that was the original good plan so he doesn't openly condemn or outright condemn polygamy but he, but we do see the chaos that polygamy really causes because jacob clearly loves rachel over leah it causes leah to get pregnant a bunch of times and and desperately try to get him to love her there's a lot of jealousy a lot of um, hatred between them at some points uh, we see with hagar hagar starts or uh, sarah starts resenting hagar um, as soon as hagar gets pregnant with abraham's son so it's not a we don't it's never shed a positive light on it's not like this is an amazing thing go be polygamous because it brings such good fruit it was a lot of strife caused by that so it was definitely a cultural thing where a lot of people got had multiple wives but we definitely see the chaos that ensues because of that and we see that the natural order of um marriage from from early in genesis is a man and a woman adam and eve being married so those are all the questions i had for genesis 1 through 30. i think there were a lot of great messages in there a lot that was going on and a lot that i was originally confused by but i think that mostly got straightened up by all of these um all this research i did so again i will link the I will link those in the show notes, like in the description on the podcast. So if you have any questions, you can go to those sources and um, go read read the entire articles. Um, and that's all. I really hope you enjoyed this um, episode. But remember, go follow me on Instagram at millennialearns. Go uh, go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would absolutely love if you wrote a review and rated it five stars if you're enjoying this. And um, that's all thank you so much for listening remember next week is genesis 31 through exodus 7 and dm me or email me any of your questions about those chapters of the bible and i will be sure to research 
and answer those questions. So thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you later. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8am Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.